0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Lee Stein, author of the novel The Fallback Plan, the poetry collection Dispatch from the Future, and the memoir Land of Enchantment. She is also the executive director of Out of the Binders, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Her memoir, Land of Enchantment, tells the story of her relationship with an abusive boyfriend and his death years later. Stein explores the complexity of their relationship and the heartbreak that accompanied it. We began the interview discussing Stein's need for self expression and how writing became her path. So I as a young person wanted
1: to be an actress that was my dream and I moved to New York City to go to acting school in 2003 and I was I was cast in all these dramatic love scenes and I was just spending every day crying and going back to my dorm room and I was writing short stories in my dorm room to decompress and I had this live journal where which is like an online diary where I had all these friends all over the country who read my live journal and I'd been posting short stories and poems to my live journal. And I got my first short story published that year. And it occurred to me that I could do this other thing, which is to be a writer instead of to be an actress. Because I was also, in acting school, I was the one who always read the whole play. And my scene partners would be like, hey, did you finish the play? What happens at the end? And I would tell them. So I realized that I had more of a literary kind of watching point of view, than needing to be the one performing. So that's kind of how I shifted into becoming a writer. And then after that, I just started working in restaurants and writing.
0: So how did you decide to go from fiction to this memoir, Land of Enchantment?
1: I was writing a second novel around 2011, um, when my ex-boyfriend died in a motorcycle accident suddenly. And I had been living with him when I wrote my first novel. I um, and when he died, I was working on this second novel, but I kept sending the characters off to New Mexico, which is where I had lived with him. And it finally dawned on me that like, that was the book I really wanted. I really wanted to write a book about New Mexico and about us. So I, so I shifted gears from writing this second novel, which is boring, and I never want to go back to it. It just wasn't succeeding. Um, but I think second novels are hard. I hear that all the time, that it's really hard after you've written your first one to find something captivating in your second so I started writing this memoir, um, and, and people have asked me why didn't I write the memoir as a novel, but it never occurred to me. It, it From the very beginning, it felt like it was this true story that I had to tell as a true story because I wanted people to know what had happened. And when he died, I thought about getting a tattoo, and then um, because I wanted to tell this story so badly, and instead of getting a tattoo, I started writing this
0: memoir. And so how would you characterize it? To someone who you just walk up to on the street
1: (laughs) what's funny is like I usually get asked at parties like oh you know what have you written I say a memoir and they say oh you're too young and then they're laughing and then I have to tell them what it's about which is I say you know it's about an abusive relationship I was in in my early 20s and the death of my ex-boyfriend in a motorcycle accident and then everything gets really sad (laughs) and then they have to say they're sorry um but that's the best way I can describe it. And when I started writing it, I thought I was writing a grief memoir. Um, and I thought I was writing about mourning on the internet and what it's like to be in my generation. I'm, a, I'm an older millennial. Um, and I feel like the boundaries are really changing for how we grieve thanks to the internet. And we don't really have an etiquette book for this yet. And so I thought that's the book I was writing. And it took me a few years by the time I finished to realize this is really a book about our relationship and how that shaped me. And grief is definitely a part of that. Um, but it's also about the character of our relationship and how damaging it was.
0: Given that party line where you, you're you at a party and you say it's about this abusive relationship. I felt as I was reading it that the physical descriptions and the ideas of the abuse weren't hitting you over the head and what I mean by that is that in the foreground is your emotions and what you're going through and in the background was that was that dynamic going on I don't know if you would agree with that characterization but I was thinking about the subtlety of it this morning and how that is crafted and is that your intent or am I seeing something that isn't there no, I think you're spot on. It was like really important to me not to write a book where
1: he's the bad guy and I'm the good girl. Um, and and he did bad things to his victim. Like, I didn't want it to be black and white, I really wanted to show the complexity of what it's like to be inside of it. Because if if abusers were just total monsters, they'd be easy to spot anywhere, we'd see them right away. Oh, that guy's a monster, but in reality. You know, my ex, Jason, was extremely charming, charismatic, handsome, very smart, very funny. Um, He didn't look like a monster. And so that explains why I got in so deep with him. And I really wanted to show how hard it was for me to extricate myself from that because it was a cycle of highs and lows. The highs with him were like, you know, flying high in the clouds in a hot air balloon. It was like I'd never experienced anything like it. I wanted to stay in those highs. And so I was willing to put up with a lot of the lows. Um, And that's where I think the title is an apt metaphor. Land of Enchantment is the state nickname of New Mexico. But it also felt like this characterized our relationship, that it was this magical kingdom where sometimes I was hurt worse than ever before, but I was also feeling higher than I'd ever felt before.
0: And so when you were writing this and, and it was really inspired by his death, how, I mean, did you feel all those complicated feelings all over again? Because in some ways it could seem like an elegy to this person or people could be surprised that when he died that you felt so sad.
1: Yeah. I ask a question like early on in the first chapter of myself, which is like how How was I supposed to, like, what kind of woman does that make me if I still missed him, if I still wanted him to come back? How do you mourn someone who wasn't always good for you, good to you? Um, So those were the questions that were driving the book. It was like a mystery I had to solve because I did feel, you know, I wanted sympathy in this after he died, but I knew that if I told the whole story I might get the, well, why didn't you leave him sooner? Or why did you stay with him? Or how can you feel bad for this guy? He was in this violent, he he committed a violent crime before he died. Um, So I was, I really wanted to show the complexity of the situation and and figure out for myself how I could love a man like that. And I think the answer is like, I think people are complex. Like I said, I don't think we're all good or all bad. And I didn't want to be. the only good in the book either. I tried to show how I was complicit or how I made mistakes as well.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lee Stein, author of the memoir Land of Enchantment. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Did you learn something new about all of this or about yourself as you wrote this? And if so, what was that?
1: I don't think I would have described the book the way I just described it to you this morning when I started writing it. I don't think I would have said I was in an abusive relationship in my early 20s. Like I never said that sentence until maybe the last 12 months of my life. It really took writing the whole book to see, oh my God, this is, this is what happened. Like It took going through writing the book. It took making a narrative out of it to see that there was a pattern there. And I didn't read other, I read tons of grief memoirs while I was writing this because I thought that's what I was writing. And then towards the end, I started reading other domestic violence memoirs. And it was so uncomfortable to read these books because there were these hallmarks of our relationship that I thought made us so special, like moving across the country after only knowing each other for six months. that looked so romantic and that felt so romantic to me, but really they're like typical signs of an abusive relationship. Isolate the victim from her family and friends, um, control who she can talk to or who she can see. And to me at the time, I thought, Oh, this is what makes our our relationship so special. We're so much better than other people. We just need each other, blah, blah, blah. But reading these other domestic violence memoirs, I was like, Oh, it's a tactic. And that was really uncomfortable to realize that. Um, but that was all part of the process of finishing this book and figuring out what it was really about at its heart. And now it's been amazing that it's come out because I'm getting a message a day from someone who's like, that's my story or that's my daughter's story or my daughter read your book and now she's out of that relationship. Or um, So it's it's just been a surprise because I thought, I was writing this unique singular story, but really I was writing this very universal story.
0: Well, one of the things I was really interested in in the book too, was your relationship with your parents, especially your mother. They there's at times in the book where you have gone back to live with your parents. You were living with them right before you took off for New Mexico and They they were a sort of witness to all this, and yet it didn't seem like they could help you that much or really saw what was going on. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that time and then writing this and how that felt for you to talk about them in this way.
1: Sure, that's a great question. I think at the time I was hiding a lot from my parents because I didn't want them to know how bad it was or else they would try to get me to leave Jason and I did leave him. There's one point where I do leave him in the middle of the night. I go back to their house, um, but within 24 hours he's convinced me to come back to Albuquerque. So I was hiding a lot from them. And then when I was writing the book, I really didn't want my parents in it. I even, I wanted to protect them. Like the whole, now that I think about it, the whole thing was just, how could I protect them from me? (laughs) Um, So I would go to writing workshops, like I went to Tin House Writing Workshop while I was working on this. And I workshopped one of the chapters and the whole workshop conversation turned into, where was your mom? What was your mom doing? Let's talk about your mom. And I was so upset and I felt so angry, like, I don't want my mom in here. Like, how dare they, you know, turn this into, you know, family therapy. But over time, I realized that they were right, that my parents are like critical characters to this story and they had to be in the book. So even though it made me uncomfortable initially to write my parents in as characters, they had to be there because I had to explain who I was at the time and who they were and what they saw and what they didn't see. And my mom read the book over Christmas in one sitting and said there's nothing she would change. And she understands now better, but I avoided showing it to my dad for a really long time. That made me really uncomfortable. He and Jason were really friendly. My dad's just like this outgoing, personal, friendly guy who can make friends with anybody. Um, no dark, he has no darkness in his soul. Um, so I think I was really uncomfortable showing it to him cause it's such a dark story, but he read it, um, in August and he was so just beside himself replaying what they could have done differently. If he had known we should have done this, we should have done that. And I've said to him, you know, I really don't think there's anything you could have done. I'm, I, I, I honestly don't. So I hope he can release himself from that guilt. The only thing that I've talked about with them that I think they could have done differently is I really feel like I grew up with this idea that I had better have a boyfriend um, or else, that that would be some kind of mark on me if I wasn't in a relationship. So I, uh, my parents were always in relationships. My mom has almost never not been in a relationship since she was like a teenager. Um, she can't be alone. And so I... I grew up with this idea that that was me, too, but in reality, I'm actually an introvert. I love being alone, and I never really got to explore being by myself because I was always in my 20s chasing who's going to be my boyfriend, who's going to be my boyfriend.
0: You're talking about this expectation that you always have a boyfriend and that coming from your parents. and. You do talk about your teen years, and they seemed um, very tumultuous, at least within your inner world. And there was a time when you were thinking about suicide, and you had a friend that essentially saved you from that. Can you talk about the story of that? So I was 13 years old, and I was extremely
1: depressed. I was missing two or three days of school a week. I would just say that I was sick, so I was being allowed to stay home by myself. For being sick, I had headaches, um, but really I was suffering from depression and it got so bad that I made a plan to commit suicide and I told my best friend who was this 13-year-old boy who lived in Las Vegas, Nevada that I met on an AOL message board for Andrew Lloyd Webber fans. We were big into musical theater and so I told him over email on AOL or over chat about my plan and we'd also spoken on the phone I paid for the long distance charges with my babysitting money and um, when I told him my plan, he called his best friend and she and this other friend convinced him to call the police and he knew where I lived because we had exchanged letters by mail. So he ended up calling the police in my hometown and the police called my middle school and the middle school called my parents and my parents took me to a therapist and I got put on medication. Um, but this is another example I think of, I felt like I needed a witness and, and the internet has always been a place for me to connect with people, um, I guess who are like me or who are interested in the same things as me in a way that I wasn't ever finding at school or in my hometown.
0: So how much do you, and I don't know if you think about this, but, you know, when they talk about the brain and the teenage brain and say that your brain isn't really fully developed until you're 25, how much of it, and maybe you can't say, do you think was just this young brain? And how much of it do you think was the circumstances? And what I mean is you you described earlier that this is a coming-of-age story. And in a way, I'm just wondering... Not to say that this all of this wasn't real because it was completely real, but do you think it was just adolescence being adolescence?
1: Yeah. So the like you said, the prefrontal cortex of the brain isn't finished developing until 25. And that's the part of your brain that's decision making, uh, impulse control. It's a part of your brain that says, mm, no, that's a bad idea. Maybe let's not do that. And it's, it explains why young people are more susceptible to uh, drug and alcohol addictions. And so I can't help but wonder if it explains as well why people under 25 are most at risk for abusive relationships, because you just don't have these executive decision-making skills that an older person has. Um, and I don't want to say all abuse victims are addicted to love, but this has been just something that I've been thinking about. Um, And like, do I think if I met another Jason tomorrow, would I leave Brian, destroy my life, um, run away? I don't think I would. I think age is critical um, in explaining what happened. But it's also, I mean, uh, these relationships can go on for years. When I was in Albuquerque doing a reading for the book in early August it was just a small group of women that came to the reading, and it just turned into this like hour-long discussion about everyone's past relationships. And one woman was like, you know, I was married to this guy for 16 years, which is astonishing. I, you know, at least for me, I, it was just a few years, and then he tragically passed away. But these relationships, even if you enter them young, they can just continue for decades before you realize what's happened.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lee Stein, author of the memoir, Land of Enchantment. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Toward the end of your book, it's actually the very last page, you talk about fear that you were afraid of leaving Jason, you were afraid of staying with Jason, but you're also talking about a place where fear and love exist at the same time. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that place, that emotional place. You
1: know, I wonder now that you say that, like, I wonder if this, like the love I think comes from optimism. And I think that comes from my mom. That it's this idea that like people can change. Don't give up hope. Everybody's good at heart. Like give them credit. Just wait for them to come around. So, it's complicated that I got that from her and I felt it towards Jason. But I, but I also felt this danger. So it's like I was on this tightrope wire between hoping he would change, hoping he would turn his life around and worrying what would happen to me if I stayed with him and kept this going. So it's like I would walk towards that hope and then get scared and walk towards that fear But meanwhile, I was just like barely on the tightrope.
0: (laughs) When you talk about this book, you know, you were mentioning earlier how it can affect some people. People can tell you that's my exact story or you gave me courage or whatever. But I also think when you talk about abuse, there can be a lot of criticism. And I'm wondering if there's places where you feel misunderstood or misconstrued with this memoir being out or the essays that you write about it?
1: Yes, for sure. I, I haven't experienced that quite yet with the book being out cause it's been only a few weeks, but definitely in the, like the comment section on my Washington post essay, there's one that's something like, you know, this is doing a disservice to real victims of domestic violence. Um, and so I think this is a dangerous categorization that like, oh, if I don't have pictures of my face black and blue, then I'm doing a disservice to to women who do. I don't think that's true at all because physical abuse, it, it, you don't meet a guy and then you go on a date and he hits you in the face. It, it starts as psychological abuse. This is very subtle manipulation and control over time. And then it escalates to physical violence. So this idea that, um, my story isn't valid and it's often coming, uh, it's often coming from male commenters. A lot of women and a lot of women, the sad truth is like a lot of women are messaging me privately and men, I don't know, are commenting in the comment section about how I'm, you know, whiny and, um, and just need to grow up. I actually, oh, that's another example. I wrote, uh, an op-ed for the New York times book review about the pushback I get for being a young memoirist. And how I think we need, you know, more stories by millennials, especially about our experiences online, because we're dealing with love and death and grief, just like an older generation, but we're experiencing it through, you know, texting, Facebook, Twitter. So a a man wrote in a letter to the editor that the New York Times published that said, like, I have advice for Lee Stein, get over it. And I just thought it was the most hilarious thing I'd ever read because I'm like, wow, you're really proving my point Um, that young people are told to sit down and shut up and, and stop and stop talking about their own experiences.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lee Stein, author of the memoir, Land of Enchantment. Our interview was recorded on Skype. All right. Well, can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you? Maybe it influenced your own writing in this book or earlier in your career?
1: Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, The End of the Story, which is Lydia Davis's novel. And it's about the end of this romantic relationship that, and it really, it really helped me when I was writing the memoir because. Like my book, her book already starts with the end. We already know that the relationship is over and the book is really wrestling with her try- the character, the narrator, trying to put the pieces together of what it had been. So this is towards the beginning. And she's describing how they met. I used to like to go over every moment of that first evening when he and I sat there at the table with friends on one side of me, friends on the other side of him, the noise of the performance so loud that no one could talk, when we walked out together, not knowing each other, and bought two bottles of beer each to bring back in, had drunk one bottle each, and had still one bottle unopened in its brown paper bag by our feet, and sat without opening it, saving it for a little while. This seemed to me, in a way, the best moment of all, when it had hardly begun. When we opened the second bottle of beer, we would also be opening everything that came after, through the late fall and the winter, but as long as we sat without opening it, we were on a sort of island and all the happiness lay ahead of us and would not begin until we opened the second bottle of beer. I couldn't see this at the time because I didn't know what was going to follow, but later I could look back and see it. Looking back at that evening was almost better than experiencing it the first time because it did not go faster than I could manage it. I did not have to worry about my part and I was not distracted by doubt because I knew how it would come out. I relived it so often. It might've happened just so that I could relive it later.
0: And do you want to talk anything more about it?
1: I just, uh, there's just like a star in the margin of this page because I was like, Oh yes. Like writing my memoir was getting to live with those scenes. Like the best scenes with Jason were just these memories that I just wanted to play forever and ever. And somebody asked me last week, like, well, how did I remember it? And it's like, Well, how could I forget it? Because I just played them like records over and over again. Um, I remember them in such vivid detail. And when I go back to Albuquerque, everything's exactly how I remembered it. I have, I have like certain drives or certain routes just completely memorized in my mind because they were such vivid experiences that I've just recorded them. Whereas other mundane things in my life today, I can't, you know, I can't tell you what I had for breakfast last week because it wasn't (laughs) important. Um, But but our relationship felt so important at the time I was just recording it like a memoirist, even though, of course, I didn't know at the time that I was ever going to be a memoirist. That never would have occurred to me. So I'm really drawn to this novel by Lydia Davis um, because she's doing the same kind of excavation and replaying of these memories, even though it's a novel.
0: Um, Can you read something that you wrote? It can be something that was tricky or something that changed a lot from the first draft, something that you're really happy with now.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read from towards the beginning. Um, This is something I wrote, like most of the book was written, and uh, this sounds stupid, most of the book was written in order. I didn't really, um, I was just headed towards the end. I didn't really rewrite a lot. But the beginning, I rewrote more than anything because I was trying to figure out How to explain who I was as a character. So, I'm gonna read something from the beginning that I wrote almost towards the end of writing my book to figure out how I could explain who I was as a child and as a teenager. I grew up in the dark, in basements, in bedrooms, backstage, in the wings behind the velvet. I grew up at sleepovers where the girls with the power were the ones who came up with the most humiliating dares for the others. We didn't realize the name for what we all wanted so badly was power. The closest we could get was attention, standing outside in the middle of the night, unsupervised, lifting our shirts to flash our small breasts to streetlights, screaming the words we weren't allowed to say in daylight. When were our real lives finally going to start? When and how would we learn all we could do with our new bodies and what could be done to them? In sixth grade, a boy asked over instant messenger if I would be his girlfriend, and four hours later, I called him to break it off too nervous about what that would mean to be someone's girlfriend in person. Somewhere between fear and desire, I figured out how to take pleasure all by myself, rubbing my pelvis against the carpeted floor of my bedroom while wearing a particular pair of denim overalls. In seventh grade, my teeth chattering from Paxil, my friend Aaron and I acted out the entire cast recording of Rent, borrowed from the library with Barbies we both knew we were too old to play with. A couple of years later, My first kiss was in the back of a car with the best dancer at the performing arts school I attended on the weekends. He had already kissed every girl I knew. So to stand apart as someone special, I let him wrap his hands around my throat at rehearsal whenever no one was looking and squeeze. I was fascinated by the dancers because they knew already what their bodies were capable of. I was still afraid of mine. Instead of dancing, I learned to sing. In public, I was a soprano, a prize-winning coquette. But Home Alone, I was obsessed with memorizing torch songs, laments for the unrequited love of a brute, which I downloaded off Napster. Popular in the 1920s, the torch singer was the opposite of a flapper girl. She didn't want to burn her candle at both ends. She carried only a single flame, a torch for dat man she can't help lovin'. The can't help part is crucial. The singer is a slave to her bad romance. My favorite remains the original torch song, My Man, sung by funny girl fanny bryce about her shithead second husband what's the difference if i say i'll go away when i know i'll come back on my knees someday
0: do you want to say anything else about this
1: this is just one of those things i guess in memoir writing like i you think you know the story because you know i had the benefit of being a novelist before i wrote this so i had an idea of like arc and pacing and beginning middle and end um but writing a memoir is, not, is more than that because you have to kind of do this deep dive into places you haven't thought of in years or places you never thought you'd have to return to. So really going back and thinking about, you know, what did I think love was when, when I was young before I met Jason? What were these um, milestones that I could pinpoint and even if some of these are like embarrassing like the fact that I lost my virginity to Jason that wasn't in early drafts because that was too embarrassing to me but over time I was like oh well that's crucial like he you know that's that's a crucial reason that I fell so hard for him and so I had to kind of write about my body and um what role that played so so that's what led me to write that section in a later draft
0: where do you write
1: I write at home and I need to really be alone. Like, even if Brian is home, I can't in another room. I can't really write. I can write, um, I don't know, less personal material if I'm writing some kind of article. But if I'm writing memoir or poetry, um, I really need to be totally
0: alone. (laughs) And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I go for walks, I go to the gym, I listen to podcasts.
1: Um, I just, I like spending time outside and get away from my
0: desk. Who reads your work, um, to give you feedback?
1: When I was working on my memoir, I was in a writing group in Brooklyn and we met about once a month. And so I would bring them a chapter. Um, and that was really great because they really pointed out my flaws and weaknesses, Um, But also it was a challenge, as I mentioned earlier, to really describe who I was as a character because they all knew me as a person. So I think they brought, they could bring a lot to the book knowing me personally. And then towards the end, I was trying to find readers who didn't know me well to, to give me feedback on it so that I could get more specific character feedback. And how have you dealt with rejection? I think... The only like the number one reason for any of my success is just being resilient because there's so much rejection. My first novel was rejected 17 times. My memoir was rejected 18 times. Um, It doesn't get easier even as I um, become more published and get more bylines. Um, It's so hard um, to hear that you're so close but no cigar and so I just, I think I'm stubborn and um, ambitious and I just hang in um, and I, I, I'm a problem solver. So um, after my memoir proposal was rejected so many times, I totally revamped it before we went on the last round of submission. You know, anytime something's going wrong, I think, well, what can I do to better position myself? Um, but it's really, it's really hard. It's really hard.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I've been thinking about what my favorite word is, and I think I have to say pamplemousse, which okay. is French for grapefruit.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lee Stein, author of the memoir, Land of Enchantment, and executive director of Out of the Binders, a nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.